This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. Hey folks, Halloween is fast approaching, and I wanted to give you a heads up on some events happening regarding Notorious Bakersfield. Of course, there's the Notorious Bakersfield Halloween Tour. This year's tour will take you to crime scene locations in Rosedale. To purchase, go to NotoriousBakersfield.com and click the link for the Halloween Tour. The other event is at the Padre Hotel. It will be an evening with Notorious Bakersfield. It will be this Saturday, October 28th, beginning at 7.30 p.m. I'll be telling some hair-raising stories in one of Bakersfield's most haunted locations. The cost is $25 and will include a free drink at admission to the Padre Hotel's Halloween party. You must have a reservation. Call 661-427-4900. Again, to make your reservation, the number is 661-427-4900. It will be a spooky and fun night, and I hope to see you there. Early in the morning, around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, on February 8th, 1991, Officer Wesley Hawks was working a special DUI task force for the Bakersfield Police Department. The three-year department veteran heard a radio call for a prowler in the area of Acres Road near Ming Avenue. Even though he was working on catching drunk drivers, Wesley Hawks wasn't far from this call. So he decided to move into the area to circulate in the neighborhood to look for this prowler. Officer Hawks didn't catch that prowler. What he ended up uncovering by happenstance was a much more serious crime. This is Murder at Wendy's. Long before the Starbucks at 3835 Ming Avenue was a Starbucks, it was a Wendy's old-fashioned hamburger restaurant. I'm not sure when exactly that Wendy's location went out of business, but in February 1991, it was a Wendy's. Starbucks is what currently operates from that location. And that's where this crime you'll hear about on this episode occurred. It was a. Uh, it was about one to two a.m. in the morning when we a call came over the from dispatch to another officer about what's called a hot prowl. The dispatcher said that there was a Hispanic male standing uh, in a bedroom when a lady woke up. Uh, some noise or commotion woke her up in her bedroom. She saw somebody standing in her room. She screamed and he fled the scene. Uh, she put the description out as a Hispanic male in his late teens, early twenties, wearing a baseball cap and dark clothing. I got on my radio and I let the dispatch know since I, I was that I'd move into the area and start circulating. I was in the immediate area within just a couple of minutes and I was traveling northbound on Acres Road approaching Ming Avenue. That was Officer Wesley Hawks explaining how he initially responded to this call early in the morning of February 8th, 1991. 
As Hawks passed Serrano Avenue, a block before Ming, he noticed a car parked to the curb. Its lights were on. The steam coming from the exhaust indicated to Hawks the car's engine was running. Passenger front door was open to the car, and I'd kind of slowed down and, and moved toward the shoulder of the road enough to see the vehicle. And I saw a Hispanic male leaning out of the front passenger side of the car. He had a baseball cap on and he had no shirt on, which was extremely unusual based on the time of the night and the coldness. It was, it was a pretty cold night. And so I pulled over behind it and lit him up, what we call lit him up. I put my floodlight, the overhead dome light shining down on it. A Hispanic male matching the prowler suspect's description was leaning out the vehicle's passenger door. This person wasn't wearing a shirt. With the cold temperatures that night, Officer Hawks found that to be suspicious. The vehicle had heavy tint on the windows, making it difficult to see inside. But he could tell there was movement inside the car because it was bouncing. Hawks cautiously approached the parked car. He gave commands to the driver to turn off the engine. The driver was hesitant to follow the officer's directions. I yelled out to the occupant, at least the driver. I told him, hey, shut the car off. There was not a lot of compliance in the very beginning, and so I, I just didn't feel good about this, and I backed up a couple of feet and moved further out away from the car and I called for a second unit. Another unit arrived at Officer Hawk's traffic stop within a minute or two. The officers began having the occupants exit their vehicle one by one. Had our flashlights, we had our firearms at ready, because it was, then we didn't treat this like a, a high-risk car stop because of the nature of the call that came out and the fact that there was some no-compliance um, hesitation. And I, at this point, I didn't know that there was a, a third person in the back seat of this car. I had no idea because the windows were so blacked out. So we pulled out the passenger who we'd saw earlier, pulled out the driver, and then they told us there was another person in the back seat. So we gave verbal commands, I did, uh, to for the guy in the back seat to get out. He eventually stepped out, did a cursory pat-down search of them set them on the curb because again we're still investigating we're thinking this was probably had a good likelihood that this was possibly the kid that was or the the young man that was inside this lady's apartment with the suspect safely out of the car officer hawks began searching it as soon as i went up on the car and peeked in i did see a purse sitting on the back seat which was i found odd the fact that there's three guys in the car and i know uh, every woman I know doesn't leave her purse in a car and, and let it be gone or let it leave her side. I mean, the purse is right there by their side all the time. So I asked the people, hey, whose purse is this? And they all, I don't know. We don't know. They're they very evasive. They didn't. They wouldn't answer. They said they didn't know. But the purse wasn't the only suspicious thing he found in the vehicle. Leaned into the front seat, looked around a little bit. I, then I got into the back seat. And as soon as I leaned inward... I saw a, a chrome handgun with a black handle or dark colored handle that was tucked mostly under the front seat from the back, reached back out of the car, yelled gun, gun, gun. And we drew down, prone the people out, all three of the suspects. At this point, Officer Hawks was fairly certain one of the three men was the prowler call he was responding to. 
From the contents of the purse, Hawks was able to figure out who it belonged to. It belonged to a young lady named Susan Perry. But he needed to find out why these three men had possession of her purse. What Officer Hawks discovered next changed the direction of his investigation entirely. The victim who reported the prowler wasn't named Susan Perry, and the victim didn't have anything stolen. His next step was contacting the registered owner of the vehicle the suspects were driving. That person, the registered owner, did acknowledge that she did loan her car to the three young men, but they were only supposed to have it for a short time. By this time, it had been several hours, and the registered owner didn't have any idea who Susan Perry was. Next, Officer Hawks visited the address on Susan Perry's ID. He talked to her parents. They informed the officer that their daughter was the closing manager at the Wendy's fast food restaurant on Ming Avenue, just two or three hundred yards from where Officer Hawks detained the three suspicious young men. Susan Perry's parents also informed Hawks that their daughter was late getting home from work. She was supposed to get home hours before. Officer Hawks returned to the area of Acres Road and Ming Avenue to investigate, to see if Susan Perry was still at her place of employment. The Wendy's restaurant was closed and had been for hours. Hawks discovered Susan's 1983 Mustang in the parking lot. I, I searched. I walked around the entire perimeter, just did a cursory. I checked every one of the exterior doors, and they were all locked. I knocked on on all three of the doors. Couldn't get any response, but I could hear a radio playing inside. I'm still. I'm thinking. I, where do I go from here? I just the vehicle's locked. I mean, the vehicle's all secured in the parking lot. The business is secured. The lights are on. I can hear radio. It should, but again, this doesn't make any sense. None of it made sense of where is she at and why is she not responding? Is she a victim of a kidnapping? Is you know, did she leave the scene with and get accosted somewhere else and have her purse taken? Where was Susan Perry? That was Officer Hawk's primary focus at this point in the investigation. I'm standing at the back service door of the Wendy's where you know, all restaurants have this big metal door. This is a service door for deliveries and you know access employees and on and on. And it usually enters the back storage and kitchen area of almost all restaurants. I just happened to look down with my flashlight and lo and behold, there was a spent 45 uh, caliber casing on the ground. And it was about just really almost right in front of me a couple of feet. Officer Hawks called his sergeant. So after I ran everything down to the sergeant and I told him, I said, hey, I think I need to get into this Wendy's immediately and, you know, check the welfare of Miss Perry. He gave me he gave me permission to try to force entry. Um, and I was able to uh, with my knife, I was able to open up the drive through window and uh, gain access to the drive through. And I just crawled through the drive through window stood up and I'm doing i I'm doing a high risk search of the building with my flashlight, and my weapon drawn. And I'm, I've cleared the front 
area real quick, you know, the dining area. And then I, I kind of worked my way out of the drive-through area, swept to the right where the dining area was, and then swept back to the left. And there was a little short hallway. And as I went into the kitchen area, there was an obvious sign of a struggle. There was some stuff strewn around the top of the, of the grill and the cooking area. And then I, on the ground, there was a set of sunglasses, like Ray-Ban style sunglasses. There was a bandana that had like eye holes cut out on it. It was laying, it was very easy to see. It was laying kind of flat. You could see the holes cut in it. And there was, I think, a baseball cap, if I remember right. So, which, you know, I mean, as, as, as cliche as this sounds, is like the exact bank robbery, you know, uh, disguise you would see on every, you know, movie you see on TV. So I found that again, my, my senses are going crazy at this point because, and the radio was loud in this kitchen area. And then I worked my way toward the very back of the building where I knew the service door was in the shell casing. And you could see the back service door. As I got to the back of the kitchen, I could see the service door straight in front of me. There was a partition wall that, that was, that ran on the right side of the service door that ran directly to the right. And commonly, and I've been in a lot of, a lot of restaurants searching them for, you know, after alarms go off. That's usually where they keep, you know, shelves of perishables and soda dispensers and things. But as I got a little bit closer and I kind of rounded around the corner to do a, you know, a search, I saw two feet um, lying, you know, you could tell it was lying horizontal on the ground. And the feet were just were kind of behind the wall a little bit. But as I came closer to the wall, um, they, the feet became visible. So I slowly crept around the building and then did a, you know, did a, a peek with my fire on my flashlight. And that's where I found Susan Perry deceased. She was shot by the back door. The slug had entered um, one side of her head. It was either above or below the ear, but it came out the other side of her head above or below the ear. And hit the. Luckily, the, the wall was tiled, and, and it was able to deflect the round, which hit the one wall. It looks like it bounced the other wall, and literally fell at her feet. And then she obviously fell backwards, deceased. You know, at this point, we've got the vehicle. The the, the suspects are driving. We have the three suspects. We have the stolen property of Miss Perry in the car with the suspects. We have a forty-five caliber handgun. We have a 45 caliber casing at the scene just outside the door. We have a 45 caliber slug and we have the victim all contained in, in one location. It turns out those suspects, Officer Hawks detained for the, for the prowler call. They had nothing to do with that call. Those three young men were now suspects in the murder of Susan Perry, the night manager of Wendy's. At the time of her death, Susan Perry was just 20 years old. She was originally from New Mexico. She and her toddler son moved to Bakersfield 14 months prior to be near her parents. Soon after arriving in Bakersfield, Susan was hired by Wendy's. Her work ethic earned the single mother a promotion to assistant manager. One of her responsibilities in this position was closing the fast food restaurant at the end of the business day. 
Susan Perry was survived by her parents, six siblings, and her four-year-old son. Now, who were the three suspects Officer Hawks detained in that suspicious vehicle? They were 17-year-old James Brian Elrod, 18-year-old Scott McKay, and 20-year-old Armando Barrera, Jr. The three had been at a party that night. The car they were driving had been borrowed from another party-goer. When police questioned the three, an interesting connection between Susan Perry, the victim, and James Brian Elrod emerged. It turns out the two knew each other. They'd been co-workers at that Wendy's restaurant. Newspaper accounts from that time say Elrod was employed with the restaurant at the time of the crime. However, Officer Hawks isn't 100% certain of this, but he remembers Elrod wasn't employed there at the time, but had been a recent employee. Whatever the case may be, Susan Perry and James Ryan Elrod knew each other from working at the fast food restaurant. Scott McKay and Armando Barrera Jr. laid the blame for the robbery and murder of Susan Perry onto Elrod. The two claim they drove Elrod to the Wendy's with the intention of him getting drugs from Susan Perry. They claimed when Elrod returned to the car, he said, quote, Dude, I killed her. I killed Susan. I've never killed anyone before. Unquote. Elrod claimed to police that he didn't intend to kill Susan that night. He said he and Susan had a plan to stage a robbery of the restaurant. When he knocked on that service door, Susan refused to open it. It wasn't until Elrod verbally identified himself to Susan that she opened that service door. And when Susan opened it, she was startled to see Elrod wearing a disguise, the bandana covering his face, sunglasses, and a Yankees baseball cap. The two struggled, and Elrod accidentally shot Susan in the head. After shooting her, Elrod went to steal the restaurant's money, but that was secured in a safe. So he stole Susan's purse. That was one of Elrod's versions of how things transpired that early February morning, 1991. Elrod had a couple of other variations to that story. No matter what the truth was, it was apparent Elrod was the one who pulled the trigger that killed Susan Perry. James Brian Elrod was the first to go to trial. His defense attorney blamed the entire crime on the effects of drugs and heavy metal music. The attorney argued Elrod's mind and body were ravaged by Satan-worshipping heavy metal music and a six-day methamphetamine bender. The jury found James Brian Elrod guilty. He was sentenced to 29 years to life in prison. The judge ordered the then 18-year-old convicted murderer to serve his sentence in the California Youth Authority until he turned 25. After that, he'd be transferred to a prison. Scott McKay was the next suspect to face trial. 
The outcome for McKay's trial was very different than Elrod's. A jury acquitted him of all charges related to Susan Perry's homicide. Soon after being acquitted, McKay walked out of the Kern County Jail, his home for the previous two years. When asked what lessons he learned from this experience, McKay responded, quote, don't talk to cops, unquote. He then said, choose better friends, make better decisions. After McKay's acquittal, the Kern County District Attorney and Armando Barrera Jr.'s defense attorney reached a plea deal. He pled no contest to robbery and involuntary manslaughter. The sentence for those crimes was three years, but he'd already served the majority of that in county jail. He, too, was released from jail. I mean, this thing, you know, is etched in my memory. It was a pretty serious, it was a pretty horrific crime. But, you know, I, I was glad. This is one of those deals where, you know, you're just glad you're at the right place at the right time. You know, it was a tragedy. I mean, you got three three young men that, you know, be prosecuted for a, for a horrific crime. You got a, a young single mother that was killed, you know, and I think she was only, I don't know, 24, 25. I don't think she was very, I'm trying to get remember her age, but then you got this little baby that was, you know, orphaned in this. So there was just, there's no winners in this, but at least there was some justice, you know, and that, that meant a lot to me in that aspect. Wesley Hawks was awarded officer of the year for solving this crime. Incarcerated, James Ryan Elrod joined the Aryan Brotherhood. While behind bars, Elrod committed other crimes, the most serious of which was the murder of his cellmate, a hit ordered by the prison gang. He was convicted for that crime. Where is Elrod today? I wish I could tell you. I've emailed the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and have not gotten an answer. At this time, there is no James Bryan Elrod in the California prison system. There could be three reasons for this. One is that he was paroled. The other is that he is deceased. And the third is that he is incarcerated under an assumed identity. Elrod had been trying to leave the prison gang culture. Sometimes prison officials will transfer a prisoner who's trying to extract themselves from gangs and give them a new name. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but it is one of the three possibilities. Resources used for researching this story, the Bakersfield Californian, and former Bakersfield police officer Wesley Hawks. Thank you to Wesley Hawks for taking the time to talk to me about your experience with this crime. This is Robert Peterson. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. I'll be back next Tuesday, Halloween, with another Notorious Bakersfield story. Until then, stay safe, stay out of trouble, don't become a future episode of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. See you back here next week.